This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business and innovation to your stories, and you can send us your best at ouramericannetwork.org. We love to hear from our listeners, and we produce them, and we put them right back up on the airwaves and on our podcasts, and we play them for you. Your stories interest us, and they're some of the best we've done. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our five best stories each week. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll send them to you in audio form and in typed form, in written form as well. And now it's time for an essay, an article by Thomas Paine. And we had given you one other by this great Revolutionary War writer called Common Sense, and it was performed good pieces of it. During our Constitution Week, we do it every year. But this one is called The American Crisis, and it's a collection of articles written by Paine during the Revolutionary War between 1776 and 1783 that came after his widely popular pamphlet, Common Sense. So this followed that masterpiece. General George Washington found this first essay so inspiring that he ordered it to be read to the troops at Valley Forge. Here now is the voice of the late, the great Orson Welles. From a pamphlet, the first in the series called The American Crisis by Thomas Paine, written by him December 19th, 1776. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to set a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Why is it that the enemy have left the New England provinces and made these middle ones the seat of war? The answer is easy. New England is not infested with Tories, and we are. And what is a Tory? Good God, what is he? I should not be afraid to go with a hundred Whigs against a thousand Tories were they to attempt to get into arms. Every Tory is a coward, for a servile, slavish, self-interested fear is the foundation of Toryism, and a man under such influence, though he may be cruel, never can be brave. I once felt all that kind of anger which a man ought to feel against the mean principles that are held by the Tories. A noted one who kept a tavern at Amboy was standing at his door with as pretty a child in his hand about eight or nine years old as I ever saw, and after speaking his mind as freely as he thought was prudent, finished with this unfatherly expression. Well, give me peace in my day. Not a man lives on the continent but fully believes that a separation must sometime or other finally take place. And a, a generous parent would have said, if there must be trouble, let it be in my day that my child may have peace. And this single reflection, well applied, is sufficient to awaken every man to duty. I call not upon a few, but upon all. Not on this state or that state, but on every state. Up and help us lay your shoulders to the wheel. Better have too much force than too little when so great an object is at stake. 
Let it be told to the future world that in the depth of winter, when nothing but hope and virtue could survive, that the city and the country, alarmed at one common danger, came forth to meet and to repulse it. It matters not where you live or what rank of life you hold. The evil or the blessing will reach you all. The far and the near, the home counties in the back, the rich and the poor will suffer or rejoice alike. The heart that feels not now is dead. The blood of his children shall curse his cowardice, who shrinks back at a time when a little might have saved the whole and made them happy. I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. It is the business of little minds to shrink. But he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. My own line of reasoning is to myself as straight and clear as a ray of light, not all the treasures of the world, so far as I believe, could have induced me to support an offensive war, for I think it murder. But if a thief break into my house, burn and destroy my property and kill or threaten to kill me or those that are in it, am I to suffer it? What signifies it to me, whether he who does it is a king or a common man, my countrymen or not my countrymen, whether it be done by an individual villain or an army of them, let them call me rebel and welcome. I feel no concern from it. But I should suffer the misery of devils were I to swear allegiance to one whose character is that of a sottish, stupid, stubborn, worthless, brutish man. I conceive likewise a horrid idea in receiving mercy from a being who at the last day shall be shrieking to the rocks and mountains to cover him and fleeing with terror from the orphan, the widow, and the slain of America. There are cases which cannot be overdone by language, and this is one. By perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils. A ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope. Look on this picture and weep over it. And if there yet remains one thoughtless wretch who believes it not, let him suffer it unlamented. And again, that's Orson Welles, and what a reading. And my goodness, let them call me rebel and welcome it. And we can understand why General George Washington had this essay in particular read to the American troops fighting against the mighty British army. Nobody could have predicted, by the way, that we would beat that army, a ragtag army of our own assembled on the fly, and we did it. And we tell these stories because... Well, when you start to hear things like, boy, America's so divided. Well, listen to our hour with Daniel Mark Epstein called The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's Home. And my goodness, Ben Franklin was with the Patriots. His son, who was the governor of New Jersey, was not. The father, regrettably, never talked to the son again. The son, well, the governor of New Jersey, who sided with the British, found himself in solitary confinement for two years and then exiled to England. America has been divided for a long time. And my goodness, these stories remind us that we do it, for the most part, today, peacefully. This is Lee Habib, Orson Welles, Thomas Paine, The American Crisis, here on Our American Stories.
Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, "John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down." This is our American stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best record you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I didn't think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it for all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive multi-million-dollar enterprise, in his dorm room at NYU, and he went on to produce Run DMC, uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica, and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music, and I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Deaf American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be really.、Um, Interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with him. In the '80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic, like in the '70s, some of the '80s. 
and the magic of the music was gone. And I was just doing it because I do it. I was just doing it because that's what I do. And I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company, and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room just with a guitar and talking about songs. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Heard a little baby on the cabin floor, little horse cold playing round the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point. first album we made was mostly solo acoustic and then it came time to do the next one and you had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band here's Tom Petty I never pick cotton Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live daddy died young working in a coal mine John would start to sing and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go, and then, woof, everybody jump on to their respective instruments. And it was fast cars and whiskey. Here's guitarist Mike Campbell. I mean, it was raw, and at times it wasn't musical, but it was so real and so heartfelt that it, it almost brought me to tears. But then Rick would really try to push Johnny to do things that he would never think of doing. I played Johnny Cash the Soundgarden song, Rusty Cage, which is a heavy metal song with Chris Cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream. And Johnny listened to it and just shook his head and he's just like, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. Bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement, and there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with the hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. going to 
break my rusty cage. It don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean, Rick was like an angel who came in to say, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe, vulnerable, and he allowed me to be myself completely. This is beautiful. And that is that is really what record producers do. It's what great directors do in the end. And really, that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do. Johnny Cash's story, Rick Rubin's story. Actually, it's a love story. If you read A Man Called Cash, you won't believe it. It is a love story. Because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career and a whole new generation of MTV viewers. Listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And at the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And they were just serving Johnny too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around... Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree Continue with our American stories, and now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two and a half year adventure exploring the American West. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our 38th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. Thursday. May 8th, 1806. Most of the hunters turned out by light this morning, 
a few others remained without our permission or knowledge until late in the morning. We chided them severely for their indolence and inattention to the order of last evening. That's a grumpy Meriwether Lewis struggling with this thing called leadership. During an elongated period of inactivity, which does make it harder, they're stuck with their friends the Nez Perce Indians at the western base of the Rocky Mountains, a portion called the Bitterroots, as they're trying to make their way home after over two years already away from home. Stuck because of this thing called snow in May. Yup. It blew my mind too. That part of the country, snow can apparently be an obstacle through September. Here's our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson, who oddly puts a positive spin on this whole drama. There's this kind of weird, wonderful interlude where they're just kind of there. Not much to be done. There's no real work to be done. They're just waiting for the moment when they can plausibly push through and and during that period they have to decide how to keep the men of the expedition um, in good spirits and in good shape physically and so they create a this is one of the most wonderful episodes in the entire expedition they they put together a kind of makeshift olympic games with the nez purse they have foot races the indians are very active and horse races We amused ourselves looking at the men running the horses. Shooting matches and wrestling and so on. Even a game of of what's called prisoner's base, which is probably a precursor of baseball. After dark, we had the violin played and danced for the amusement of ourselves and the Indians. And so the captains encourage this because they know that this will um, divert the men, keep them from being too grumpy, and keep them from fighting and getting into incidents with their native hosts. But also it keeps them in better shape and prepares them for journey that's certainly coming. By way of exercise, which we wish the men to take previously to entering the mountain. In short, those who are not hunters have so little to do that they are getting rather lazy and slothful. It has this one additional advantage in that it helps to cement the good relations between Lewis and Clark and the Nez Perce. And, you know, the Nez Perce to this day uh, say, we, we liked Lewis and Clark and their men and Sacagawea and we got on with them, and we actually formed a, a, a treaty with them. We had a, we had a formal ceremonial council with them, and we agreed to live in perpetual peace with Jefferson's Americans, and we agreed that we would not fight wars and, and that we would cooperate with whoever came after Lewis and Clark uh, bearing the United States flag. And they say, the Nez Perce say, we never broke that commitment. You did. You white people did. You you broke it again and again and again and again, and we usually um, accepted it. However much we felt misgivings about it, we accepted this haughtiness and, and, and American land lust and cultural and religious arrogance until finally in 1877 
a flashpoint occurred and the Chief Joseph War came. But their view is that 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 time with Lewis and Clark, a little bit on the outgoing journey in 1805 and, and about six weeks on the return journey in 1806, was the basis for a perpetual relationship of peace and friendship and mutual help between the Nimipu, the Nez Perce, and the United States of America. But Lewis and Clark didn't listen to their friends about when they can leave. They listen for a while, and so they wait and wait and wait, and, and Lewis keeps asking the Nez Perce leadership, now, can I go tomorrow? Can we go? And they keep saying no. Well, finally, Lewis, uh, when he sees that this young Nez Perce uh, man has, has gone over the trail, he, he moves into a, a sort of a, a pride moment, you could almost say a racist moment, where he says, well, if, they can, if an Indian can do it, we, we certainly can. And then he decides we're off, we're doing it. We can do it now. Enough snow has passed, we've just got to. If we don't, Lewis is thinking, if we don't cross the Bitterroots now, in June, we won't get home this year. Because once we get to the other side, we still have almost 3,000 miles to go before we get to St. Louis. And even though we'll be going downriver, that's a very long distance to cover in a traveling season. And the last thing that Lewis wants is to get over the Bitterroots in July or August and then wind up having to winter in South Dakota or winter in Nebraska or winter in North Dakota. He has, in his mind, he has to get home in the travel season. 1806. He knows that they've been gone longer than they had expected. He probably assumes that Jefferson is worried. He may assume that people in, in St. Louis and, and Washington, D.C. have written them off as lost or, or dead. And so he feels a tremendous sense of urgency to get home. And the choke point is right in front of him, the Bitterroot Mountains. And so his view is, look, we may suffer, but we, we know how to suffer. We're going to punch through in a forced march over the snow if necessary because I can't wait any longer. And again, the Nez Perce say to him, really? Because this is, you're going to find that you just can't get through yet. We, we live here. We know these mountains. We know exactly what the window of opportunity is for transit. And you're, you're pushing it. You're not going to make it. Sunday, June 8th, one of the Indians informed us that we could not pass the mountains until the full of the next moon, or about the 1st of July. That if we attempted it sooner, our horses would be at least three days travel without food on the top of the mountain. This information is disagreeable inasmuch as it causes some doubt as to the time at which it will be most proper for us to set out. However, as we have no time to lose, we will risk the chances. And so he ignores the clear warning of their friends amongst the Nez Perce and starts out prematurely. The Nez Perce is shaking their heads like, okay, you know, you'll be sorry, you'll be back. We'll wait here for you. And in the next episode, we'll find out if Lewis and Clark would come back. We'll find out what happened. And my goodness, what a journey this was. And we thank, as always, Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark Periodical. We proceeded on 
And you can learn more about Clay and all of his work at ClayJenkinson.com. That's ClayJenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour. That's right, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, Jefferson deserves it. The most epic road trip ever, the Lewis and Clark story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories, and we like to periodically dig into the lives of business owners, business founders particularly, and we like to do that because, well, it's important to understand their lives, and they don't go around whining or complaining or describing the difficulties they face, the ups and the downs. One thing's for sure, towns can't survive without prospering places of employment. It's where tax bases come from. It's where meaning comes from. Without work and meaningful work, what is life? And so you're not going to hear stories like this anywhere else in the media. And we don't shine it up. But we just tell the stories. And this one today comes from Walter Blessy. He's the founder of Blessy Marine Services, who has over 700 employees. And they move our nation's oil and chemical products on our waterways. We've previously brought you his story as a part of our American Dreamers series, but today he brings us the story of a crisis that his company faced. This is Walter Blessy, um, owner and founder of Blessy Marine speaking. Um, I just want to tell a little story about life and appreciation that touched me greatly. Back some years ago, maybe four, so, um, our biggest customer in the marine business that charters tows and barges from us came to us and wanted us to lower rates as the market had collapsed. We had seven years left on our contract um, with no outs for them other than our non-performance. I agonized over what to do. and. We ultimately offered them a three million per year reduction. That wasn't good enough uh, for them. They wanted a, a reduction around seven and a half to eight million dollars per year, with seven years left on the contract. I had a lot of sleepless nights, um, deciding what to do. Finally, I decided to redo the contract at that lower rate, and I was very nervous. I ran the numbers and I felt like there's a good chance the market was horrible. I felt there was a good chance that uh, we would not make money for the next seven years. We would just pay the bills. And uh, I felt like paying the bills was the most important thing as we went to zero debt. Um, 
I then suspended our 401k match, which would hurt me because I, I love our people. And, you know, no one, I explained the situation to the company and no one left. Everybody stayed aboard. And we, we also did some reductions in, um, in our health insurance. And as we progressed, I saw that we were still making money and able to pay the debts and we could be down to zero debt at the end of seven years. And so back this year, about the third year of this situation, I reinstated the 401k match and um, reinstated some, some benefits that we'd suspended. And I sent this following email out to the company um, in recognition of this. As we marched to zero debt, I and my family want to extend our personal thank you for your belief and commitment to our family, our team, and to our values. Two years ago, I was overcautious with lowering contract prices in the bad market. Imagine you have seven years left on a contract. They want you to lower your prices by $8 million a year. You bet that I was cautious. Well, the fog has lifted, and we're doing fine. Not as well, but still doing fine. In one of my last emails, I alluded that going forward, we want to do something nice for our people. I was thinking that we would do such in several years. Well, this summer, we had some guests up to our place in Montana. and We're out on four wheels, and one of the guys in my four-wheeler asked me what I wanted to accomplish before I left this earth. And I said, the first thing I want to do is do really nice things for our people that have been with us on the journey of life. And I started thinking about that. I was planning on doing something as the debt went down to zero. But um, I thought more and more about it. And I said, you know what? I feel comfortable enough that we can do something sooner. So I sent this email out um, in November 2019. We'll give everyone who has been with us 10 years or more $10,000. You'll still get your bonus, but I want to say thank you for being with us and being having faith in us. So that's what I did. I said, I am humbled by my responsibility for ultimately being responsible for you and your family's well-being. I assure you that my son-in-law's Clark and Daniel share my values and will continue our culture in the same standard after I depart this earth, hopefully many years from now. Happy Labor Day. God bless. Bless you proud. Stay the course. Walter. Well, the responses I got really choked me up. Um, so many people sent me nice, nice things um, and responses, and I'd, I'd like to share some of those with you. And um, I won't say the person's last name. I'll just say their first name. Well, this person, um, a lady um, that is taller than me, said this. Wow, little shit. To say that I'm proud of you is not enough. You truly are an earth angel walking on this planet. And I don't say that lightly. There is this light inside of you, and you care so much about people without having any type of greed or fear about scarcity. And that's exactly the way true leaders on this planet live. You've touched so many people's lives in a way that I can't put into words. 
I love you, little shit, and that is just a human-to-human -human love, nothing more, the way I love my closest friends. Coco. Whoa. Oh, oh boy. Next one. Walter, I've been so stressed about my financial situation, I've tried to sleep the entire weekend away. But during my waking time, I've been praying and having faith that God has this, that he would get me through this challenge, knowing he has gotten me through the way worse than money issues. This email from you has turned it around for me. You are truly God sent into my life because without your generosity and my job, I'm not sure what kind of situation I may have myself into. Thank you for my heart. I sit crying tears of hope and tremendous gratitude. Love to you and your family. Regards, Wendy. Wow. Next comment. Walter, I can't even begin to explain how proud I am to work for the Blessy family. I myself have grown so much in the time here. The old man, that was his father, told me a long time ago that Blessy would be our future. He was so right about this. Troy. WB, I think this is an incredible gesture. I will not be in the recipient group as I will only have been here nine years as of November 19, but I think the acknowledgement of efforts of long-tenured folks is amazing. Good work. Bo. Your generosity simply amazes me, and you never cease to amaze me. Your phone call caught me off guard, and now your email has floored me. I'm always grateful to work for you and your company. As I stated on a phone conversation, I was not upset by your measures to be cautious. I understood because you have been so generous to me and my family in the past and that you were doing what was best for our company's future. I'm so thankful for this bonus. I believe you are doing exactly what the Lord put you here to do. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your blessed family. It is a great feeling to bleed green. Please give Jane Ann a hug for me. She is also an amazing person. You're a very lucky man to have found such an amazing woman. I love you both for being part of my life. Forever grateful, Maureen. So, as I read those responses, I stumbled a bit because I was tearing up. Um, you know, I found that in life, um, running a company, being responsible for all these people's folks are going to understand if you're sincere or not. They're going to understand if you're a BSer or not. And um, in the in the marine business, particularly, um, you have to have people that care. Uh, a captain leaves with his boat and his crew. He has millions of dollars of product, millions of dollars of equipment. And he's gone. He's not in the office where you can look at him. He's out anywhere from St. Paul, Minnesota to Brownsville, Texas to St. Mark's, Florida. So we have 75 boats and about 180 barges. And it takes a team to make it happen. And I, I wanted to exp express that. So having said that, I will end, but um, it's been an amazing journey, and um, hopefully it's not over and a long way to go. So thank you, and um, if as an employer, be a good boss.
be a loving boss, be a caring boss. And great job, as always, uh, to Alex for getting that done. Alex pointed out to me just a second ago that there were many, many more emails on Walter's desk. By the way, you heard him mention that there was debt in the company and they were looking forward to paying that down. $700 million worth of capital investments in that business. That money went to buy barges. Those were companies that employed people. Towboats. Those companies employed people. And around those businesses were restaurants and waitresses. So we love to tell the story of the ecosystem of free enterprise. Walter Blessy's story, in a way, America's business story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and today we're diving into one of my favorite books of the year, and we do a lot of books here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and see all that we do, and while we're there, or while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter, and again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories of the week, and the book is Kicks by Nicholas Smith, and it's all about the history of sneakers. Before we start the story, Nicholas, I want to read two things from your prologue. Quote, sneakers can help us stand out or blend in. They can be the item we build our outfits up from or an afterthought we slip on before running out the door. And every sneaker we wear says something about us in both subtle and not so subtle ways. This was something I never actually thought about until I did. Was this true with you? And what led you to write this history of the sneaker? Well, I'm not what you would call uh, a traditional sneakerhead. I don't have a closet full of 50 different rare sneakers that are, you know, limited edition or things like this. Uh, I approach this story from a runner's perspective. I, uh, running is my hobby, so most of my sneakers are kind of running sneakers. And the more I researched the story, the more I kind of saw the appeal of shoes as a fashion item. It's not something I really sat down to, to think about, you know, like many people I had maybe just one pair of casual sneakers to, to go outside and go to uh, the grocery store with. But as I researched more into this, I started to see kind of the appeal of having a sneaker for this outfit or a sneaker for that outfit. Here's a very common item that for some people, it is, it is the basis of their outfit and everything that they're building up from kind of rests on the sneaker. And for other people, it's the complete afterthought. It's the last thing that they threw on before going out the door. And I think that's, that's really the, the most interesting thing about sneakers. Indeed. And my 13-year-old girl, the poor shoe people, because she has almost no shoes. She and all of her friends have 8, 10, and 12 pairs of sneakers for precisely the reasons you discussed, Nicholas. So it's an interesting trend, what's happening with younger people. You also wrote this in the prologue. The history of the sneaker is, in a sense, the recent history of the United States. I thought that was such an absurd statement when I read it, Nicholas. And that is until I started reading the book and the story. So let's start off at the beginning with the story of Charles Goodyear. Talk about this American innovator and businessman, because it's quite a story. 
we, we can't really tell the uh, the history of the sneaker or really many of the other objects that are everyday objects without telling the history of industry. And to go back to the beginning, to the Industrial Revolution, uh, Charles Goodyear was an inventor, kind of a, a tinkerer, a person who would be stuck in his basement trying to solve the problem of rubber. Now, the problem of rubber in the early uh, Industrial Revolution was it was very susceptible to temperature. Uh, when it was cold, it would turn brittle. When it was hot, it would melt. So as you can imagine, rubber products weren't very versatile. Uh, Goodyear uh, had the idea that rubber could be stabilized. And uh, through his years and years of tinkering with different mixtures, different ways of preparing it, he perfected vulcanized rubber, which uh, is more resilient uh, to temperature. Now, without vulcanized rubber, we couldn't have, of course, uh, sneaker soles, but we also couldn't have uh, car tires or you, you know, so many different parts uh, that we rely on uh, today. So this was kind of a very uh, important uh, invention that Goodyear stumbled upon. Indeed it was, but before sneakers could take off, we also needed the idea of leisure time. That, too, would develop as America and the world industrialized. Yeah, people forget that the concept of the weekend is kind of a a very new concept. Now, kind of the the forerunner to the weekend and vacations for the working class was uh, called Wakes Weeks. Now, in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, they would have to close the factories periodically to uh, you know, maintenance the machines and do service work. And during this time, the workers would take their holidays or, or what we would call holidays. What was once the area of just the upper class, just having uh, so much free time that you could devote to hobbies or different things was finally starting to trickle down to everyone else. And you know, to fill that free time, we saw the growth of sports, of games, of hobbies, of, of many different things. And let's talk about one of those sports. Let's talk about James Naismith. Who was he, for folks who aren't avid basketball fans, and why is he such a big figure in your story? So James Naismith, of course, was the inventor of basketball. He was also a teacher at a uh, a YMCA. Now, as the story goes, it was a very cold, very dark winter near the turn of the century. And uh, his students were stuck inside and he didn't know what to do with them. You know, those days, physical activity was calisthenics, aerobics, gymnastics, not something that's very competitive. So Naismith nailed up two peach baskets, one on each side of his gymnasium. And he had a, a soccer ball with him. And he had, you know, Two teams trying to get that basketball into the peach basket on either side. What he found was his, his students took to it very quickly. He wrote down the rules and had them published in an academic journal, and this eventually spread to other YMCAs and then to other schools and then to other uh, universities across the country. So the game of basketball kind of benefited from having that set of rules travel around so quickly. Who's Chuck Taylor? We've seen his name stitched on Converse. He was a big player in your story. Now, Chuck Taylor isn't one of those figures uh, like that that was invented for a brand. He was an actual person. Converse was a 
company that's it's been around 100 years now today. But when uh, Chuck Taylor joined the company, it was the 1920s. Uh, he had just finished a very short career as a professional basketball player. And uh, w- when I say professional in those days, it's kind of more what we would consider uh, a semi-professional uh, basketball player. But he wasn't very distinguished, even among the players of the day. But he did have a good knowledge of the game. And this is what he brought to Converse when he was a salesman. He would travel from town to town putting on these basketball clinics. He's kind of the uh, the Johnny Appleseed figure of basketball. So in every town that he would visit, every clinic he would put on in schools or universities, he would teach the basics, he would teach some tricks. And, you know, of course, there was that little marketing message in there that, you know, in order to play basketball really well, you would need these Converse All-Star shoes. And after years of success, he decided to name the All-Star the Chuck Taylor shoe. So this is why, to this day, you, you see his name stitched on Converse Chuck Taylors everywhere in the world. And when we come back, more with Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Nick Smith talking about his book, Kicks. We were just learning about the origin of Chuck Taylor's sneakers, shoes named after a salesman who was basketball's Johnny Appleseed. Can you think of a single product that's named after the salesman in a company, not the CEO, not the patriarch, the salesman? Because I racked my brain, Nicholas, and I couldn't think of one. You know, off the top of my head, no, and I'm sure if I thought about it for another couple hours, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't think of any. And that kind of speaks to the marketing genius that uh, Chuck Taylor had. One of the other things that Converse did to kind of develop the game further is they published this uh, yearbook, kind of a who's who book of basketball of the day. So if your team wanted to be in the yearbook, you just had to send a photo of your, your team in and where you played and, and who all the players were. And, of course, you had to wear the, uh, the Converse uh, you know, shoes in, in the, uh, the picture. But uh, in this book, Chuck Taylor would say, you know, here's, the, here's some tricks of the game. Here are the best players playing the game, and, you know, traveling from town to town. He really had an eye for who was good, who was an up-and-coming college player, and Coaches called him for advice on, well, who should my scouts go after? So he was kind of a a self-developed expert in the game, and this earned him a place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, you know, here we have another example of a a salesman not only having his name on a shoe, but ending up in a sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's remarkable how he deployed every tool in the toolkit to sell. And actually, it just sounded to me from reading your book that he didn't think of himself as a salesman, but an evangelist for this ministry called basketball. Exactly. And, you know, part of that comes from his connection to the game. Because he was an actual player, he saw maybe a different side of it that a normal salesman uh, wouldn't see. So there was a, uh, a level of expertise that also attracted people to these clinics. Here you would hear uh, a professional player really tell you how to play. Here, here are the real tricks. Here's what, here's what the people are actually wearing. So it, it did have a, uh, a certain degree of expertise when he went around. That's great. And let's talk about a track coach 
who had a tremendous impact on the world of sneakers, sports, and the culture. Let's talk about Bill Bowerman. He coached nine sub-four-minute milers at the University of Oregon, the most of any coach in America, four NCAA team championships, 24 NCAA individual titles, and coached 33 Olympians. Some call him the Bear Bryant, the Nick Saban of the running world. That's perfectly accurate. He really knew the sport in and out, but uh, he would do experiments with everything having to do with running. He would, in his backyard, mix up different combinations of rubber to create a, a good running surface to run on. He would make the clothes that his runners wore out of the lightest material he could find. But he also uh, experimented with shoes. You know, in those days, there weren't uh, as many choices for running shoes as we have today. He surmised that the best running shoe was probably one that was made specifically for the athlete. It didn't waste any extra material. It was it, it fit perfectly. It, it didn't have an extra ounce on it that it uh, that it didn't need to have. So he would use his runners as kind of human guinea pigs while making his uh, his own shoe concoctions. Over time, he got a little better and, and better at it. And uh, this caught the eye of one of his uh, former students, a uh, runner by the name of Phil Knight. Now, Phil Knight had just returned from a, uh, a trip to Japan business idea. And uh, while he was in Japan, uh, he met with the executives of a company called Onitsuka Tiger. Now, we, we kind of know this company more as ASICs today. Uh, but in the, uh, the 1960s, they were, they were tiger shoes. They were still you know, fairly good shoes at the time. And Phil Knight says to his old coach, look, we can make you know, some money importing these shoes, these Japanese shoes, to the U.S. market because they are of similar quality to the Adidas and Puma uh, shoes that are out there, but of course cost much less. So of course, Bowerman jumped at the chance not only to, uh, you know, to, to have a little side money, but to also have the ear of a shoe company that would finally listen to him. So of course, over time, their company, which is called Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, gained more and more success, and they eventually spun off to a company that we know today as Nike. Now, the bones of Nike are built into, of course, running shoes and making kind of the, the perfect running shoe. So it, uh, it, it definitely came from an area of expertise. Indeed. And, and talk about a breakfast that changed Bowerman's life and waffles. Bowerman coached in Oregon. And uh, as, as we know, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is very wet. You know, the running shoes of the day, the traction wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not enough to really grip mud, not enough to go over concrete very easily. And Bowerman was also obsessed with, with coming up some, some sort of pattern for the soul. And as the story goes, he's in the kitchen one Sunday. Wife is out. He sees the waffle iron, then he has an idea. It's like, wait a minute, the waffle pattern is the pattern I'm looking for. So he pours some molten rubber in the waffle iron, it gets stuck, and then he goes to the store to, to buy another waffle iron and, and you know does his test. And finally, he comes up with the, the waffle sole. Now, of course, the, the actual sole made for the shoes isn't made in the waffle iron. <laughs> the uh, waffle iron just provided the, the seed of the idea. But the, the waffle sole shoes proved to be a good enough grip for practically any surface. So this was kind of the, the beginning of the, uh, the jogging shoe uh, as we know it. And although jogging seems common and normal now, it wasn't always so, was it? You know, running as a hobby wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a thing. You know, if you 
went, went outside in the 50s and 60s and saw uh, someone running, it, uh, it, it would kind of strike you as odd. You know, the, the only people that might go out jogging were, you know, boxers training and kind of the, the local town nutcase, and that was it. <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s and, and going on to the 70s, it started to become kind of a, a new trendy thing to go outside and run just for exercise. When Bill Barman traveled to New Zealand with his uh, relay team, the coach there for the New Zealand Olympic team said, you know, why don't, why don't you come on a race uh, or just, just a Sunday run with us? So he says, okay, you know, track coach going on a run. Okay, it, it seems easy. But uh, what he discovered was he, Barman couldn't keep up with, uh, with any of the people, and some of them were much, much older than him. They blazed by them. And he was wondering, okay, why – why is it that I can't keep up with these people, but they seem to just go for miles and miles? And the New Zealand track coach had an a exercise regiment called jogging. So Bowerman took this idea, brought it back with him to, to Oregon, and kind of started the uh, very small jogging boom uh, in Oregon. So go across the coast to New York now. So another jogging boom was taking shape. Fred Lebo was working in the fashion industry in Manhattan, but he was also uh, an early jogger. And he is known today as the, the founder of the New York City Marathon. The early New York City marathons just went around Central Park a few times. But uh, Fred Lebo uh, had the idea that uh, by expanding the marathon across all five boroughs of the city, it can really kind of act as a, uh, an advertisement uh, for New York, not just an advertisement for the city, but also as an advertisement for jogging. You know, one person was saying that the best singles bar in New York was Central Park because you can just go up to uh, someone else that was jogging and strike up a conversation. So what uh, Fred Lebo did and what uh, Bill Barman did was kind of start an exercise movement, kind of the first exercise fad uh, that the U.S. has known. Dr. Ken Cooper is my personal doctor. I'm pretty fortunate to have him uh, for my annual checkups. And he wrote a book called Aerobics, which you talk about here as well. You know, I talked to Dr. Cooper just before this interview. I said, you know, what, what should I talk to Nicholas Smith about? And he reminded me that back when he was doing his work, and he had trained NASA astronauts, uh, worked in the Air Force, a, a remarkable doctor. But he was on this quest to prove that exercise, jogging, aerobics, would actually increase life expectancies and health. And he wanted to get people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to start running. The medical establishment came down on him like a ton of bricks, that 50-year-olds would be dying in the streets, that this was a terrible idea. Well, there was kind of this thought that, uh, you know, any, any sort of physical activity was uh, dangerous if you weren't, quote-unquote, the, the right person. And uh, this is kind of something that... Uh, that uh, I'll, I'll come back to this New Zealand story that uh, Bill Barman went on when he saw, you know, a man come to his aid that was not only older than him, uh, but had survived a heart attack. Uh, this kind of, you know, woke something up in his mind that, you know, this, this cardiovascular exercise was in fact good for you. And, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper found was it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're young or old, if you're active, it does add years to your life. And when we come back, more of our conversation with Nicholas Smith, his terrific book, Kicks, the great American story of sneakers.
This is Our American Stories. We're back with Nicholas Smith, author of Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. And we were just talking about the rise of jogging and the start of the New York City Marathon. By the way, that first New York City Marathon you point out in the book had 55 finishers. That's, uh, that's quite, quite a movement from 55 to what we watch today on national television. Let's talk about women who were long excluded from running in marathons, even up to 1966. You tell one story of Bobby Gibb, who was 23. She entered the Boston Marathon, got her envelope, hoping to see an acceptance and a racing number. Instead, she found a note from the director of the race. I'm going to read it to you. Women aren't allowed, and furthermore, are not physiologically able. Talk about the reasons women were excluded from marathons, and talk about one woman, Catherine Switzer, who changed everything. So uh, women weren't just uh, excluded from marathons. Uh, They were pretty much excluded from uh, every other sport all through the 70s. And uh, even uh, college sports and women's colleges were uh, so segregated in the tens and the twenties that men weren't even allowed to to come and watch unless you were a, a relative of the women playing. It was considered uh, unladylike for uh, women to exert physical uh, activity. Now, um, that slowly and thankfully began to change in the 60s and the 70s. And Bobby Gibb was one of those people who kind of said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to run the Boston Marathon, whether or not women are allowed to run or not. And uh, you know it did uh, it did have some uh, some pushback, and one of the people that uh, saw that pushback firsthand was uh, Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number. Now she was able to enter by uh, entering just her initials, KV Switzer, to get her number. But once one of the uh, race officials saw that a woman was running the Boston Marathon, he you know, walked onto the course, he tried to, to shove her saying, give me your number, and uh, uh, Switzer's boyfriend kind of pushed him out of the way, and photographers riding by in a, in a truck caught all of this on camera, so all of this was on you know, newspapers uh, shortly afterwards. And you know, over time, uh, things started to relax in major races and women were allowed uh, to compete and there were women's only uh, races in the 70s or in the 80s and it uh, wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that there was an actual women's marathon. All of this, by the way, Nicholas, was building up the market for running shoes and at the same time endorsements were also starting to influence the sneaker world. Before there was a Michael Jordan, there was a guy named Walt Clyde Frazier of the New York Knicks, and this is, by the way, back when they actually won games and even a championship or two. Well, uh, both Adidas and Puma uh, were starting to get the idea that, uh, you know, to sell a lot of shoes, we need to have a lot of people wear them. We needed to have a lot of players wear them. So uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had signed with Adidas. Puma was looking for uh, a big star of the day to sign with. And Walt Frazier was kind of a, he's a very extravagant player, both on the court and off. He had a, a, a fashion sense that people used to tease him about. His, his nickname, Clyde, uh, kind of came from the movie Bonnie and Clyde because he had this uh, hat that reminded his uh, players uh, of the movie. So he was very fashion conscious. 
so Puma approached him uh, with an idea uh, to have a signature shoe. Now, this would have been, you know, the first professional uh, signature shoe basketball player. Now, you think, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, Chuck Taylor? That was also a signature shoe, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't made when he was still playing in the game. It was named afterwards. So, you know, Clyde would have this very stylish uh, shoe uh, that he would wear in the games. And, of course, this is a key moment because this is around the time when sneakers started to move off of the courts, off of the playing fields, and into everyday life people started wearing them uh, around the street. So the Clyde shoe was very popular, especially in New York, because you had one of the biggest New York Knicks players wearing a shoe that you could also buy and, you know, just wear with any sort of outfit. And besides that, he's a very, you know, fashion conscious, stylish player. So any way to emulate him that you can afford, especially the shoe, is, uh, is going to sell. Indeed. And by the way, it's the first suede shoe, which I, I remember because I had one of these Clydes. My goodness, if it rained and you know New York weather, if it snowed, my Pumas, my Clydes never touched the ground. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, I think, a Puma executive who said something along the lines of, you know, we, we love it when it rains in New York because, or when it rains or snows, because that means we're going to sell a whole lot more suede shoes. Indeed. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision uh, by, uh, by the company, but, uh, you know, you have to kind of be mindful of what the weather is like if you want to keep your sneakers looking very nice. And also in the 70s, a drought and water restrictions in California gave rise to a different type of fashionable sneaker, a more durable kind that could take the punishment dished out by skateboarders. Talk about that. This is one of my most favorite surprises of the things that I researched for this book. Now, skateboarding went through several different phases. In the 50s and 60s, there was kind of a, a sidewalk surfer craze where, you know, it was uh, something that you can do was kind of like surfing, but on land, but this eventually died out. But it wasn't really until uh, the 70s and the, the California drought in the middle of the 70s that skateboarding started to take shape as we would recognize it today. The, the reason that happened stretched back to Scandinavia, to an architect that designed a kidney-shaped pool. And another architect, very famous architect in California, saw this and brought that kidney-shaped pool to a house he was building in California. And, of course, this uh, you know, caught the idea eye of other developers and suddenly kidney-shaped pools were everywhere in California. So fast forward to the 1970s, you have this drought. Uh, there's not water to have in the pool, so all the pools are empty. So the, uh, the kids that are skateboarding are skateboarding because maybe the waves are flat that day. They're, they're, they come from a surfing background. And then they see these empty pools all over the city with uh, curved and sloped sides. So perfect for riding a skateboard up and down. And eventually they found that they can go very fast down these pool walls, shoot themselves up and do tricks in the air and then land. And this sort of thing was unheard of in skateboarding at the time. Tricks would be kind of, um, you know, handstands on a skateboard. This, this would be a good trick, not, uh, you know, flying through the air, turning around a few times and then landing. So as this kind of gonzo approach to skateboarding uh, happened, it started to gain more and more popularity as kind of a, an underground youth thing. But where shoes come into play is, as you can imagine, if you're going up and down pools, you know, you're going to fall, your shoes are going to take a beating. And there's this company called Vans, you know, the, the Van Dorn Rubber Company that was based in California. 
And uh, they were famous for, you know, not making uh, mass-produced shoes that were the same everywhere. If you wanted to have a shoe in a certain pattern, they would make it for you. They they had the uh, the shoemaking machinery, they had the uh, retail outlets, so they were really kind of, uh, you know, completely vertically integrated. And after a while, they saw that, you know, people were demanding shoes that kind of uh, needed to hold up um, to a, a beating. They were, van shoes were tougher uh, than other shoes at the time. So skateboarders of the day kind of gravitated towards this, that, you know, it's better to buy a, uh, a shoe that was more durable than a shoe that would you know, fall apart and you would have to replace over and over. So the uh, skateboarders that were skating the pools, they, um, you know, tended towards van shoes because they were tough and also because, they were stylish. You can get them in you know, almost whatever color uh, that you wanted, which was you know a little bit unheard of at, at the time when shoes came in white, they came in black, or they came in like a dark navy blue, and that was it. So you had a combination of a uh, an underground subculture that had a very specific demand for a shoe, and also there was this fashion angle that they wanted it to, you know, look how they wanted it to look. So this a combination of all of these different factors kind of contributed to not just the success of fans, but just uh, the concept of a trendy sports shoe. And more on the American sneakers story here on Our American Stories. with Nicholas Smith, and we're talking about his book, a really great read, Kicks, about the history of American sneakers. The next big influence in the world of sneakers didn't come from the sports world. It came from the music world, breakdancing, and then soon after, rap artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys would have their influence on the world of sneakers. Talk about that period. So before we get to the 80s, we'll have to stretch back a decade and talk about the 70s. Now, earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have the, you know, Adidas shoe and Walt Frazier would have his Puma shoe. These shoes proved very popular in the the budding uh, hip-hop movement. You know, as people were starting to develop uh, and invent breakdancing, people wanted to have a a, a style all to themselves. So these breakdancing crews would often dress the same. And, you know, they would all be wearing the same pairs of Adidas, or they would all be wearing the same pairs of Nike or of the uh, the Puma shoe. So these shoes were already kind of built in to a subculture. Now, when a hip-hop group like Run DMC comes along, they originally didn't have the uh, the style that we know them of today. They didn't have the black leather jackets, the Adidas track suits, the the hats, or the uh, the famous black and white superstar shoe. They dressed in you know kind of uncool looking plaid suits. But it wasn't until they started dressing like the uh, the Queen's neighborhood uh, that they came from that they started to kind of develop their own identity. And part of this identity came in that Adidas superstar shoe. Now, of course, if you have a very popular group, you know, wear a certain style of shoe, and if you're, you know, a fan of that group, you're probably going to wear the 
the shoe or the brand yourself. And there was a, a famous incident where they were at a, a concert in Madison Square Garden. And just before they performed their famous song about their favorite shoe, My Adidas, they asked everyone in the audience to, to hold up their shoes. And all of these Adidas shoes went in the air. Now, fortunately, a uh, executive from Adidas was in the audience and he saw the power that, that the band had. And they were the first non-sports figures to have a shoe contract for an athletic shoe company. Let's talk about the year 1984 in Nike. It was a big year, but it was a bad year. They just posted their first ever quarterly loss. They were even into layoff mode. They needed to do something big and in the nation's biggest sport when it came to sneakers, and that's, of course, basketball and the NBA. You write about the fact that there were three big-name prospects that everyone thought Nike should pursue. John Stockton, who ended up at the Jazz, Charles Barkley at the Sixers, and Hakeem Olajuwon at the Houston Rockets. But a fourth name came up. Talk about number four, because he would help transform the company, and Nike made a big and astronomical bet on number four. Nike had shoes on players, but they didn't have shoes on the right players. And they wanted to kind of target some up-and-coming names in the 1984 draft. Now, that fourth name, Michael Jordan, they could have just offered him the same shoe contract as they were going to with, uh, with John Stockton and the others. But uh, the key point here is we're not going to uh, give Jordan just any old shoe contract like we've been giving the pros for the past couple of years. We're going to build an entire line, an entire signature shoe line and apparel line around Michael Jordan. Because they did this, and because Jordan was such uh, an electric player, they kind of invented something new. Now, of course, there was Clyde Frazier earlier, but there wasn't really the full force of a company's marketing behind one single player. One single player kind of presented as his own brand, the Air Jordan brand. And as Jordan started to get better and better, of course, people wanted to you know, know why was he so good? Uh, a couple years after they started coming out with the Air Jordan shoe, they, they wanted to try something new with the marketing. So they hired a very young director named Spike Lee to direct a series of commercials starring him as his character, Morris Blockman from his first movie, and Michael Jordan. Now, these commercials were revolutionary for the time. Other sneaker commercials starring NBA stars were a bit cheesy. They were a bit you know, they, they they didn't really sell the product as much as, you know, okay, Larry Bird is wearing, you know, this brand of shoes, so you should also wear it. But what the uh the Spike Lee and, and Michael Jordan commercials did, they were they were funny. They were lighthearted. They didn't seem quite like a shoe commercial. They were kind of a, a comedic pairing with uh, Michael Jordan acting as the straight man. Now, the big tagline from these uh Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials was, you know, what makes Michael so great? Is it, uh, you know, the, the way he jumps? Is it, uh, you know, his haircut? Is it, is it the shoes? And is it the shoes? This became kind of the, uh, you know, the, the seed that Nike wanted to plant in everyone's mind. Okay, well, if, you know, Michael can do all these things in the Air Jordan shoe, well, maybe the Air Jordan shoe can help you play basketball better. Maybe it can help you jump higher. So there was kind of this 
this magic that Nike was tapping into with the Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials. And I don't know if this was conscious of them at the time, but it's a kind of a very old idea of the magical shoe. Now, what uh, what makes Cinderella a princess? It's the glass slipper. What makes Dorothy come back from the land of Oz? It's her ruby slippers. What makes Michael Jordan jump so high? It's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. By the way, you, you also talk about this remarkable business deal. Jordan got royalties not only on the sale of each Air Jordan sold, but all Nike Air sneakers. What a big risk to take. But by the way, what big rewards for Jordan and for Nike, that deal? No, for sure. You know, without really the success he had on the court and without the success he had with Nike, we wouldn't have an entire Jordan brand spun off from Nike. It's funny, he's, you know, been out of the game for so many years, but Nike Air Jordans are, you know, still still worn by people everywhere. You know, they still come out with new uh, Air Jordans all the time. There's new versions of uh, different colors of the old Air Jordan shoes from the 80s. So it was kind of a uh, a unique way that really paid off for both the player and the company. Tell the story of where Nike got their new slogan, Just Do It, because it's a pretty unlikely source. This kind of came, you know, from a, the, the least likely source that you can think of. There was a, a murderer uh, on death row, and he uh, was, you know, okay, well, what, what are your last words? And they were, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, let's do this. Now, when one of the executives saw this, he kind of thought, okay, well, I'll file that away. And it, when it became time to, you know, think up of a, a new slogan for the company, this popped into his head, just do it. You know, we know now that uh, Just Do It, it's as much a part of Nike as the, the swoosh is. So it's it's so baked into the company's DNA that it's difficult to, to separate them. And I should also add that uh, when the uh, Just Do It slogan came out, it, it became kind of a... Uh, a rallying cry, a point of pride for people. It, uh, you know, inspired them to to do more. It inspired them to get out and exercise. Uh, there was one story where someone wrote into the company saying, I, I finally left my husband because I heard this slogan. So it, uh, it kind of, uh, again, tapped into a much greater idea uh, that was there that, you know, people sometimes need that little push. I can only guess most Americans now uh, have at least a few sneakers in their closet. We had started off this way, we'll come close to ending this way. But I look around now, Nicholas, and I mean, people are wearing sneakers almost all the time. In business casual situations, I see men in sneakers routinely, and women. Yeah, sneakers have kind of become the uh, the default shoe, whether we are going to the office or going to the, uh, the supermarket. It's, uh, you know, what we... Uh, throw on to look nice or it's what we throw on just to have something on our feet and we can thank the uh the birth of casual friday for bringing the uh, sneakers into the boardroom indeed last thing what surprised you most telling this epic story of the sneakers i know i was sideswiped by this book and absorbed because in so many ways just as you had said early on this is the story of 20th century american culture I guess what surprised me most when I looked into it more and more, sneakers were there at so many different junctures in the 20th century. You know, even U.S. soldiers trained in sneakers going to uh, World War II. What I'm fascinated by is, let's take the Converse All-Star, for example. 
This is a shoe that, you know, if you're a, a punk rocker, you might wear. Or if you're a, you're a teenager wanting to look hip, uh, you might wear. Or if you are, are a little bit older, may have worn in gym class many decades ago. It's a shoe that, that means so many different things to so many different people. I, I recently got back from a uh, vacation in Venice, Italy, and I saw an old nun wearing a pair of Converse all-star sneakers, the, the Chuck Taylor shoes. So it, it's really a shoe that's, that's just become almost generic, even though it was at one time a very specialized piece of athletic equipment. Yeah, I can't think of any American fashion brand in which I actually wore Chuck Taylors and I play I played high school basketball and my daughter is wearing Chuck Taylors the old man and the daughter wearing the same exact sneaker where else in American fashion exactly and you know that that sneaker will probably be around for a, a long long time after that well Nicholas thanks so much for your time and thanks for kicks the great American story of sneakers well thank you for having me and that was Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and it's available on Amazon. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like what you hear and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of the week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and just sign up. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you're hearing. Nicholas Smith and the Sneakers Story of America. Nicholas Smith, the stories of sneakers in America. Here on Our American Stories.